It is your Friday daily delivery. I am Michael Rand. Final show of the week. Really happy to be here to bring it to you. Another good one, as always. Lavelle Enil the third columnist from the Star Tribune will join me here in just a few minutes. Mostly talking twins today. Got into the weeds a little bit. A little inside baseball on kind of how baseball is covered, how that has changed over the years. Just some thoughts I've been having that I thought Lavelle would be a good person to answer those questions. So we got into a pretty interesting discussion of just how things have changed, the evolution of how we watch baseball, the evolution of how we uh, how we cover baseball, things of that nature. So stick around for that, in addition to plenty of talk about this year's team and a Joe Maurer anniversary that is coming up this weekend. Um, got some Vikings kicker thoughts at the end of the show as well. First, though, what did I miss? Let's talk about the Timberwolves schedule at the beginning here. And I know, I know that the schedule doesn't matter a whole lot with any of these sports because they have a formula, right? With the NFL, with the NBA, with Major League Baseball, NHL, all these sports have a certain formula where we basically know what teams everybody's going to play before the schedule comes out. But when the schedule comes out, there is still kind of this opportunity to take a look at it from a bigger picture perspective. Um, you know, in this case, the NBA 82 games and see how it's laid out. See if there's anything within how the schedule is made that might tell us something about the season ahead, about the team that is uh, that is going to be put on the court. So I have a few thoughts after seeing the Wolves schedule. Number one, <clears throat> they're only on national TV 10 times this year. Five games on NBA TV, five combined on ESPN or TNT. That is quite a few, uh, quite a, quite a bit less than last year, where they were on. Uh, they were on national TV sixteen times, including ten on either ESPN or um, or TNT, and six games on NBA TV last year. So, going from sixteen to ten national TV games tells me how quickly they've kind of become not the darlings of the NBA anymore. They were really a team. Considered to be on the rise, a team of great intrigue a year ago when they made the trade for Rudy Gobert coming off of a season of um, of success, I would say, two years ago. Um, two years ago, and they won 46 games, won the play and had a really competitive playoff series against Memphis. Seems like seemed like their arc was heading upward and their national TV exposure reflected that this year. Going from 16 to 10 reflects how, how they fell flat last year, how they were only 42 and 40. Things didn't come together like they thought they would. They still made the playoffs through the play-in tournament, but it was a pretty easy, breezy advancement for the eventual champion Nuggets in uh, in five games. So that was the first thing that stood out to me. Fewer NBA, uh, fewer national TV games for the Wolves this year. A reflection of kind of what the what the public perception is, what the national perception is of this team going in. Doesn't mean they're not going to be good this year, but that, that's the public perception. That's the perception right now of how much people in a larger scale are interested in this team, even with an ascending Anthony Edwards on the roster. Number two, their schedule really seems to be clustered. Um, a lot of home games right off the bat. Five out, of, five out of the first seven are at home, and then 17 out of 27 after the All-Star break at home. <clears throat> in the middle of that, though, a lot of road games. Um, they've got five different road trips of at least four games this season, which was interesting to me. Those, those, those will probably largely define their season. Largely, will tell us, you know, how 
how this season goes, whether they're able to navigate those big road stretches. They've got a big one coming up right off the jump after that kind of five out of seven stretch. Uh, they've got to go on the on a West Coast trip or, you know, mostly out West, San Antonio, Golden State twice, and Phoenix, and then New Orleans. So a lot of, a lot of games in their conference, a lot of games... Um, you know, later start times, things like that. One of those, uh, two of those games actually are part of their in-season tournament. A new thing this year that we talked about earlier this week with Chris Hine, the NBA trying this in-season tournament. The Wolves have four regular season games that are part of the in-season tournament play. Um, those are all in November. Two of them road games that I just mentioned, part of that road trip in early to mid-November. And then two of them home games in late November. Uh, the two road games at San Antonio at Golden State, the two home games, Sacramento and Oklahoma City. Those are the four teams in their pool play. So we'll see how that goes. We'll see how that piece of it is. But, you know, the in-tournament in play is interesting. In-season play is interesting. But that largely will be absorbed into the regular season. The larger piece of this for the Wolves is can they navigate these long road stretches, these five stretches of at least four road games in a row? Number three, the schedule, even though... Um, they have a lot of home games at the jump. <clears throat> They've got a lot of competitive games. I think that the narrative last year was that they could get off to a fast start because they had a lot of home games and a lot of games against teams that didn't figure to be very competitive. I don't see that in their schedule this year. They open at Toronto, which doesn't figure to be a great team. But then they've got Miami in the Target Center home opener on October 28th. Miami, of course, uh, in the NBA Finals a year ago. They go at Atlanta after that. Then their four-game homestand after that is Denver, Utah, Boston, and New Orleans. Denver, of course, the defending champs. Boston, a favorite to emerge in the East this year. Utah, a team on the rise. Always intrigue here with that after the Gobert trade. And New Orleans, a team that if they can ever finally get healthy, they will be pretty good. So I don't see this as an easy schedule, even with the home games. And right after that, they've got to go on that five-game road stretch, <clears throat> which includes two games against Golden State and one against Phoenix. So I'm seeing this as being a challenging schedule, different than last year. Now you kind of bit them last year because they weren't quite ready to take advantage of those easy teams early on last year. They played basically 500 against an easy schedule early on, and they were chasing those games for the rest of the year. So maybe that's not such a bad thing for this year's team that they don't have such an easy slate of games. So those are the kind of the things I see right off the bat. They've got a seven-game homestand right after the All-Star break that could very well define their season. They go on the road for six right after that. It's a, it's a lot of these chunks of games that are either home or away. A lot of not a lot of like little one-off games, which is probably good. Better to to not have to travel so much, especially for a team kind of right in the middle that has to do a lot of travel to the Western Conference teams. But that's what that that's how I see it. Fewer fewer national games. Um, a tough early schedule and got to navigate these road games. That that that's going to be the key to the season for me from the Wolves' standpoint. In addition, of course, to how they all come together and gel, and hopefully for their sake, much better than a season ago. MGM Wine and Spirits is the choice for savings, service, and a great selection of spirits, premixed cocktails, wines, and of course, ice cold beers and hard seltzers. With over 30 locations throughout the Twin Cities and beyond, there's an MGM near you. Head to MGMWineAndSpirits.com to find a convenient location in your area. Get social. Follow MGM on Facebook and Instagram for all the latest news and trends. Make great moments with MGM Wine and Spirits, your locally owned and operated choice for over 50 years. Save time, save money. Shop MGM. I've got Star Tribune columnist Lavelle E. Neal III with me here today. It had some, I think we got to do some Twins talk here, La Lavelle. They just finished this series with the Tigers. They've got the Pirates 
coming up. Um, you've got a Mauer, another Joe Mauer piece, but a, a, a different one than the one you wrote about Mauer at 40 and an interesting one coming up soon. So I want to pick your brain on that. But what, what have you, uh, as you think about the Twins right now, they kind of settled into this comfortable but not like insurmountable lead, it feels like, in, in the AL Central it sounds like Dallas Keuchel might get another start. They've got him listed as their Sunday starter. That didn't go great in, in Philadelphia last week, but otherwise the starting pitching looks good. They kind of seem like they are what they are at this point, but I want to know what, what you have seen from them since we talked last. Well, I mean, more of the same. I mean, there are times when they're knocking the ball around and getting some power and getting really good pitching. And then it seems like every time they get on a roll, they run into the Tigers. I think the last couple of stretches here when they played well, Detroit shows up, and then they, they, the Tigers have been their kryptonite this year. I can't explain it. They play good defense. They've shut down the offense. And uh, Spencer Torgerson's got to hit. He must have hit like five or six homers against the Twins this year, it seems like. So um, good riddance, Detroit. Uh, they don't have to worry about them till next year, hopefully. Uh, this has been the pain in their keisters. Uh, you know, you can blame the tabbies for the Twins' inability to extend their lead in the division and uh, get your revenge next year. But for some reason, my goodness, this year uh, Detroit's had their number. Uh, so I do think that they got an interesting stretch coming up here pretty soon because they've got the Airborne Rangers. That's uh, Tom Kelly's term for the Texas Rangers. And <laughs> okay. they, are, they, they are the Airborne Rangers again. Um, and then um, I think Cleveland's not too far, not too far. Along, but either before or after that. Um, so there's going to be a seven game stretch there that if they're going to falter and choke this thing away, um, the, the skids will be greased during that period when they have to face uh, Cleveland. Did I say Indians? I mean, Guardians. Guardians. Uh, we, we know, we know what you mean. We know what you mean. <laughs> had to face Cleveland and then um, the hated uh, Texas Rangers. That is coming up uh, in a week. They have four games at home against Texas. And then three games at Cleveland. And then I will propel them on in three games at Texas. And then three at Cleveland. So this is a very interesting stretch. It's the, starting on the 24th. The, of, the, uh, Cleveland, the Cleveland games are here. Uh, there's a three more in Cleveland, too. Oh, okay. Oh, it wow. Yeah, four, right, it, right. Four, it's uh, Texas, Cleveland, Texas, Cleveland. Oh, you're right. Um, yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that's a meat grinder officially because that would be the Guardians' last stand. Uh, the team name actually is appropriate there. And uh, then you got the Texas for seven games. So, man, um, that's going to be that's gonna be wor- worth worthwhile viewing there to see how to navigate those two squads, to see if Cleveland uses that as an opportunity to get back in. Uh, I would be reluctant in using Emilio Pagan. I think someone actually changed uh, Pagan's Wikipedia page to suggest that he was actually a secret agent for the in, uh, for Cleveland <laughs> last year by the number of times he gave up runs to the Indians and in late in games that helped the Indians beat the Twins. So um, we'll see. They're getting healthy. If they can stay, you know, keep getting healthy and stay healthy. Um, Rocco let it slip the other day that uh, Bucks is not going to play until September. I know it. I know uh, it. So uh, that's very interesting because he wants that DH spot to use Julian and some other guys in, and I don't blame him. Don't no. blame Rock right now. You've got to win now. It's about putting the winning team on the field. You, you can't sit there and put up a, a Bucks as hijinks. And when you when you when you evaluate this season, you all have to look at each other and said we screwed up. We should have either told Byron he's got to play center field, or if you're not 100, percent we should have 
if he needed surgery and come back in June, they should have done it or, yep. or July. Um, you, because uh, more than one person now is telling me, and former players too, is that, you know, he, it, it's hard for someone who hasn't been to DH to DH. You know, you're still trying to figure out what doing in between the bats. Do you sit in the dugout and watch the game? Do you go look at film? Do you go hit off the tee? You know, what do you do? Um, when you're playing defense, you're able to block a bats out of your mind, focus on defense, try to help the team that way. Um, he's not able to do that because he hasn't been in the field this year. So it's been a lost season. It's been a lost season. So they got to try to win with uh, – they got to try to proceed without him. Um, Royce Lewis comes back. Rocco bats him third. He produces. What Matt Walner, I don't still don't know why they waited so long to call him up. I just think this guy takes good at bats and puts a charge into the ball. When it's hit, it stays hit. Uh, you add Julian into that mix. Uh, hopefully Kirillop appears in the next couple weeks, although there's been no update about him. But they're going to have probably – by, by September 1st, they should be as healthy as they are – have been all year. Um, maybe Joe Ryan will be back. And we'll see what type of finishing kicks that this team has. But uh, they got to get to that gauntlet, that Guardian Ranger gauntlet here that's coming up soon. What do you, you – know, for the short term, I think they're fine with – kind of acknowledging that the offense generally has been better since Buxton went on the injured list, like to have being able to rotate around and pick matchups and not have Buxton slumping in the middle of that lineup has made things better. Big picture. That's not great. That's not a good sign that a guy that you've signed for, you know what the original contract was about seven years, a hundred million dollars, like a guy that's getting that kind of potential money, um, that he's not producing and, you know, next to Correa, who at least gives you something on defense and has a, a bigger track record of offensive consistency has shown a little bit more lately, but the Buxton thing's got to be a real problem and Correa too, but like long-term the, the struggles of those guys forget this year, like long-term, if those guys aren't what they thought they were, that's a big problem for their payroll. Yeah. That's about $45 million in uh, athletes that they're got money locked up into. Um, to try to get figured out. And like I said, you know, I don't know how much bucks is going to be used when he's activated in September. Um, but if he doesn't hit right away, I would just say, man, we're shutting you down. It's just not working. You know, we just have to just got to tap out this year and try to get healthy during the off season and come back in the 2024, uh, ready to be a center fielder, you know, um, Korea, he's still a hell of a shortstop. He made a couple plays during the yeah. last homestand. Absolutely dazzling. That arm is great. Um, you know, uh, Polanco at second. There's definitely at least two plays he would have made that uh, that he did make that uh, Julian had no shot at making. Um, so you see the difference, you know, when those guys are, are in the field. And Correa's been producing a little bit at the plate, but it's not all on him now. You know, you've got Polanco, you've got Julian, you've got Walner, you got Lewis, you know. Kepler's um, hitting well. Yeah. Kepler is kind of rebounded after I called for his head on the platter. <laughs> right. Uh, they, they have. Um, the, the younger guys, other than Cap, you know, the young, the twenty-somethings that kind of build out this team a little bit this year, as I as I pointed out, in my Walner column. Yeah, the Walner column was good. Is it? Dan, did you go into that writing Walner, and then he just happened to hit a grand slam, or did you adjust when he hit the grand slam? No, that column was written before, uh, right before the game. That's um, amazing. I love when that happens. Well, I warned I warned my bosses that as soon as I came off the the, the bench here, that uh, I was going to give his coach a call. And kind of write a Walner-based call. And he gave me some good stuff, you know. And, yeah. Uh, Walner's one of those guys where um, 
you could shoot the BS with him and talk to him without the recorders on. He's fine. But when you turn on the recorder, he, he tenses up. Yeah. And it's not the it's not the best uh, interview, you know, and it's not for like a trying. He just gets uncomfortable. You know, reminds me of Robbie Grossman. Robbie was a great guy to talk to uh, in in the clubhouse. But if you needed a quote from him, uh, it was hard. It's hard for him to for it to come out of him. So, um, and with some experience, maybe we'll get more comfortable in those settings. But uh, yeah, the text message exchange that Tim and Tal Gravel were having was were pretty neat. And uh, it's funny we're in a press box watching a game. And Roy, uh, Patrick Royce walks by me, and I'm sitting there going, I need Walner to do something to make my column look good. And next to bat was the bases loaded at bat. Yeah. And I said, I can't, I can't make it up. And it made me look like a genius because people on the, on the online were commenting at the bottom of the story. Wow, that was a quick turnaround. <laughs> well, and I and I I kind of read it, and I was like, man, we it took a long time to get to the grand slam. So it kind of seemed it, it, it read to me like. You had the column written, or we're r- going to write the column regardless, and it was a good column, and it would have it would have worked just fine, regardless, because Walner's been a, is having a good year. He's a good story, but I love that the I love that the Grand Slam happened on the same night. I, I might have, I probably should have volunteered to climb back into that thing and get it higher, maybe the second or third graph. I, I'm thinking right now there was a spot where I could probably work. I could have worked it in, and it could have gone farther. Because yeah, I I had that kind of same reaction too when I was reading it, and I got down. Wow, it's the next to last graph. It's like, well, they had to put it in somewhere, you know, and I didn't know if I had time to go back in or not. So I just kind of yeah, left it well, alone. And there was plenty of it. I mean, that was the whole game. I mean, it was a five yeah. to three game. So when you hit a grand slam in a five to three game, that's probably going to dominate the game story as it did anyway. Exactly. Um, you know, and some of this inside baseball stuff that you're talking about literally and figuratively kind of reminds me of something I wanted to bring up with you. Now, I've, I've talked about this with like Chip and Royce, but you did the beat for so long. And I think baseball more than anything, more than any other sport, has suffered from this kind of change in how we watch games, how we kind of the the the, the importance we put on on games in, in modern sports. I want to take you back to like when you first started covering baseball, probably in the nineties, right? You were in Kansas City and then here, maybe even even before that, uh, but definitely in the nineties and beyond. How how did how do you think you interacted with the game? How do you think fans interacted with the game in terms of two game losing streak, teams not playing that great, versus now where one bad thing happens and the sky is falling, or one good thing happens? Like I feel like our opinions of these teams change so often. We treat this like the NFL, where you just can't do that. I, I try to I try to stop myself from doing it, but you can't watch baseball this way. I'm wondering from your perspective how much you've seen that change. Massive. I mean, when I first started covering ball, it was the um, the mid-'90s when I covered the Kansas City Royals, and that was like the, the end of Hal McRae, all of Bob Boone, and the beginning of Tony Muser. And that was at the, that was at the stage where you um, you brought the sport news baseball register in your, in your bags. You could look up players and their history. Um, some people had Baseball Digest. Some people had Bill James Abstract. Uh, Buster only used to have like two bags. He'd come in with like the regular computer bag, and then he'd have like what looked like a mini suitcase with all the reference materials that he would use to look up stuff. And then that's when you kept your own your own books. You know, yeah. you would you would track um, pitchers and their outings and how many pitches they would throw. You would track uh, batting with the bases loaded. You would track. You would track uh, runners in scoring position success. You know, you had a page for all that crap. You spent the offseason basically 
you know, going to the printer, printing up all the stuff you're going to need to the reg- for the regular season, the charterless crap, you know. And so um, that was our reference material. Now it's all online. Thank God right. for baseball reference. Yes. But it also means that the casual fan also has access to this stuff. They can sit there uh, and go to baseball reference and look up the past. They can also, um, you know, because now before I get off the beat, I would have like three screens open. I would have uh, Star Tribune website open. I would have baseball reference website open. And now I would have StatCast open so I could track arm strength and exit velocities, you know, stuff yeah. like that, you know. Um, yeah, it's like I walk into Rocco's office. Rocco, you guys hit eight balls over 100 miles an hour in the first three innings. You got, wow, you looked that up? Wow. <laughs> that, was a, that, was, that was in New York against the Mets. That was the Mets series. He was surprised I had that nugget for him. But so it's so different. Since the casual fan has access to this stuff now, they can react more acutely to what's going on in the field. And social media, you know, is a, also a landing spot for a lot of their praise or their criticisms or their concerns. So it's totally changed the way Beat Ryan is. I mean, you used to break a story like in the mid 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, you know, you could like walk with your chest out for the next day, you know, because the other guys are playing catch up. Now someone breaks a story and, and like you're caught up in 20 minutes, you know, and it's like there's no, it was always a great feeling to, to have something in the paper that no one else knew or, or no one's had that next day. Sure. Now it doesn't matter because of online stuff. So it, it's, it's, it, the way game is absorbed and synthesized is much different than it was in the nineties. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a hard way to it's, I'm sure it's changed the way you've covered the game. And I think it, it makes it hard. It's a, it's a hard way to watch baseball. I try to take myself out of that mode. I think basketball suffers from it to a certain degree too, where we, we fall in love with really short term trends and just kind of forget that there's, variance in a season there are highs and lows there are swings that have nothing to do with anything except the variance of sports that things sometimes don't go the way you think they're going to go that that sometimes three broken bats fall in and then someone hits a long home run and then that's that's the difference in the game things like that like we i think we get caught up in that it's so easy to treat everything like it's so important and, and treat it like it's an NFL game that there's just one a week and there's only, you know, 17 of them in a year now, uh, as opposed to baseball with 162. It, it bothers me that I can't get out of that mode sometimes. Yeah, you're right. I mean, like, like the other day I made a remark about, I don't like how Duran's curveball is breaking, you know, and, you know, back in the day you walked to a clubhouse and it wasn't in one of these modern ballparks. So a lot of, cha- a lot of places, the coaching staff was still dressing, in the same areas that the players dress, I could walk up to the pitching coach and go, hey, uh, Durant's curveball looked a little flat. Is that what was going on? Yeah, he had trouble getting over the top of it, blah, blah. So you can go back upstairs where he didn't have his curveball that day. You know? uh, now you can't find a damn pitching coach after games. They're out somewhere in front of a computer doing something right. or stalking somebody off the ledge. But then you, you can go online and look up spin rates. You know, <laughs> and, and, and that's a great equalizer. Although I would rather have a pitching coach verify for me that the curveball was off than just – running the numbers and saying the spin rate of his curveball was only 2,100 revolutions instead of 2,600. <laughs> you know, I, that's, I wish I could avoid that. Yeah. Well, anyway, I just, I, I wanted to ask you about it as someone who did that beat for so long and still is, you know, still is very ingrained in the, uh, in the game. Um, I want to ask you Joe, Joe Maurer question too, because you, you brought this up before we started recording um, coming up now on the 10 year anniversary of when he took Kind of the the fateful foul ball. I'm sure there was plenty over the years, but the the foul ball that, that led to the concussion that essentially 
changed his career path. It took him from a catcher to a first baseman and really impacted the last four or five years of his career and really the last four or five years of that big contract he signed before the before the start of the of the 2011 season what what uh as you kind of researched this thought about that moment what what have you found yeah hey, just you know i think we forget how serious of a concussion it was um because uh, joe christensen did a follow-up the next year which i looked up a few days ago and he just remarked how doctors told him he was and Mar was going to see all kinds of doctors so trying to find one that would tell him you could keep catching but he couldn't find one you know and they got to the point where, look, this was a serious concussion. And you're susceptible to worse symptoms if you get another concussion. So that kind of drove him away from catching. Um, the other checkpoint was, too, um, before the 2010 season, we're in spring training, and Maurer just signed his eight-year, $184 million contract. Um, and um, so we had a press conference. And I can't remember who said it. But there was a Twins official behind me. He whispered me into my ear, you should ask Joe this question. And so toward the end of the press conference, I stand up and say, Joe, how much longer do you think you want to be a catcher? And Joe was like, I really haven't thought about that. I think I want to catch as long as I can. Well, we got that answer, unfortunately, like three years later Yeah. Uh, when the foul ball came. Because it altered his career. It altered the Twins' trajectory as well because um, Maurer was not Maurer. And uh, when you're ha- when you have a catcher who's capable of putting up a six war season, that makes a big difference on your team. And it, it was just the latest in a bunch of historically the Twins have just been bit by injuries. Uh, Herbeck's body giving out on him and making him say, "I'm just said I'm done." Uh, Kirby Puckett waking up in spring training one year with a black spot over his eye. Yeah. Uh, Morneau's concussion in 2010, and then Myers' concussion in 2013. That's the, that was the day the MMM boys stopped being in MMM, MMM boys. So uh, it's just unfortunate. Francisco Liriano, uh, do, dominating hitters, and yeah. then blows out his elbow. And Terry Ryan's like salivating because he's like, I'm going into the postseason with Francisco Liriano and Johan Santana. Yeah. That, that's, like, that's like Schilling and Randy Johnson. Yeah. That's like Viola. That's like Viola and Bly Levin. You know, if things break the right way, you can get like maybe three starts out of one of them uh, in the postseason. You could pitch your way to a title. And it, things just never transpired. It's never broke the Twins' way for some reason. Well, that was Maurer's like last great year, too, if you look at it, just in terms of OPS. Like every year before that, except for the 2011 kind of lost season, the bilateral leg weakness, whatever we decided right. that was, like every year before that, his OPS for, you know, I mean, the MVP years, OPS is over a thousand, but every other year he's getting on base basically right. at a 400 or better clip. His slugging is decent. His OPS is over 860 every year. Like he was dominant and, you know, he was probably going to come down a little bit with age, but I've all, you know, he started striking out more. I'm sure the vision was different after you get that next concussion. Right. And it just it just wasn't the same for him, and it's a, it's it's a shame that we'll never know kind of what the last half you know last third of his career would have been like without that. And he went he went into 2018 thinking he was going to play in 2019, but in May he dove for a ball against Anaheim and bumped his head and got concussion symptoms after that, and that forced him to kind of reassess everything once again because now he's got kids. Yep. Um, Chip was on the way. Chip hadn't been born yet. Okay. And it really factored into his decision to, to step down after that year. And, um, you know, because like going back to 2013, it took two months after the season for him to get rid of all the symptoms. Like 
um, his daughter, like if his daughter started crying, he had to get up and leave the room because it would just mess with him, you know, uh, things like that. Sudden noises in the house would just mess with him. And I don't think he wanted to go through all that again. And plus, he's got a family, you know, and that, that was a consideration he had to take seriously. So um, it's just unfortunate. One of those checkpoints in Twins history that could have went another way. It's kind of like Gwyneth Paltrow in the sliding door. Oh my uh, gosh! I haven't thought about that movie for a long time, but yeah, that's that, that's that's a that's a good one. I do I do think about it from time to time. Well, yeah. I'm glad you're I'm glad you're writing about it because I I think we maybe underrate that moment to to a degree because those those twins teams were bad even if he was going to be good. The 2012 2013 twins those were not good teams, but you know as as they got more competitive again towards the end of Maurer's career, and he did have a good. He wasn't dominant, but his 2017 season was was pretty good. He hit over 300. That was kind of his last like really productive season. But you know, if we think about the toll that took on him, the toll it took on the team, you know, when he's making so much of the payroll and not able to produce, I, I think maybe we underrate the effect that had on on the franchise for so many years. Well, you would have had Joe Maurer at first base instead of CJ Crone for the Bomber Squad in 2019. How would that <laughs> how that would have transpired if he was? Yeah. Still at his po- at the height of his powers as a catcher, what would that look? What would what would that have looked like? Yeah, yeah, I know it. Well, you'll never know. Although at 2019, by then Mitch Garver was a silver slugger that year, so I don't know what to, what what it, it's a lot of every, Minnesota sports history is just basically full of nonstop what if moments, except for yeah. except for the ones that, uh, that that actually went their way. Um, well, Lavelle, you brought up a lot of good stuff on on uh, today's segment. Appreciate it as always. I'll. I'll be watching that uh, that Guardians Rangers gauntlet. I wasn't really paying so close of attention to that schedule, but that's that's a good one. That's 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 kind of probably where the where the Central will be will be won or lost. And then, man, Lavelle, if they if they can't win the Central this year, I I don't. I mean, I don't I don't like I don't like their outlook going forward if they can't win it this year. Well, Joe Polat's got some decisions to make if that happens because. Uh... The, the Polat family's given Fal, uh, Falvey and Levine all, all the resources possible to build out their uh, statistical, uh, their analytical department and all their scouting. And they've been able to shape the organization they, the way they want it shaped. And to have this type of outcome would just be devastating considering what they had to work with. Yeah, I agree. Lavelle, appreciate it as always. Read that column in Sunday's paper. I'm sure it'll be on starttobe.com, maybe a little bit before that as well. Appreciate it, sir. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Good stuff from Lavelle, as always. Good piece in uh, today's paper, Friday Online on starttobe.com as well by Bobby Nightingale Jr. Um, on just kind of the Twins' issues, the things they need to watch for as they get into this final 40 games of the season. He noted, and I've noticed this too, they are very much the favorite to be, to make the playoffs, 91% according to fan graphs. That's a pretty... A pretty high bar for them to uh, to have to to miss right now. Um, a lot of bad things would have to happen. But like Lavelle and I talked about, there's a lot of games with Cleveland left. There's still some tough games left on the schedule. They're only up by four and a half right now. That is not an insurmountable lead, even if their schedule is pretty forgiving after this tougher stretch that Lavelle and I talked about. And even though they do have this four and a half game lead right now, so there are things they have to figure out still. Like Bobby pointed out, the back end of the bullpen is a big one. What they do with Byron Buxton in the DH spot when and when and if he's healthy, those are questions they will need to answer along the way as they try to secure their first playoff spot and their first division title since 2020. 
Let us finish with the cooler. Like I mentioned, Vikings kicking news. They kind of surprisingly, I think, um, made a kicking decision already. What looked like a two-kicker competition, even if there was seemingly a clear favorite with the incumbent Greg Joseph uh, and the undrafted rookie Jack Podlesny, um, Vikings cut Podlesny on Thursday, ostensibly making this Greg Joseph's job. Um, He kicked well in the preseason game last week against Seattle, uh, but Pelesny was supposed to get some work in this Titans game on Saturday night. Instead, looks like it'll be the Joseph show. He was good in the clutch last year. He just missed a lot of weird, a lot of weird kicks, a lot of easy kicks last year, a lot of extra points. Some uh, some that you think were gimmies last year, so maybe they wanted to see a little bit of extra competition. And Pelesny had kicked pretty well in camp, so maybe a little bit of a surprise that they went this way early on. I'm happy about it, though, For if I'm the Vikings, because I don't think they want to mess with that. We've talked about that over the years. We've talked about that with former Vikings kicker Ryan Longwell. You don't want to just go and mess with the operation over and over and over and over and over. You want some consistency. You want some um, some continuity in the kicking game. So I think keeping Greg Joseph for now, seeing if he can duplicate the, the clutch kind of kicks he had last year while being more consistent. You want to see if you have your long-term kicker here. You don't want to just kind of try something new because you weren't satisfied with a few things last year. So I think this is a good idea, um, but it also bears watching. It bears watching that they had a guy this deep into camp um, ostensibly setting up a real competition with Greg Joseph. So I don't know if they feel 100% settled, but for now, it does feel like the Vikings have a settled kicking situation. And I guess that probably feels good in mid-August as opposed to previous years. That'll do it for me today. Good stuff coming up next week. Roycey should be with me on Monday. We'll have some gopher volleyball talk next week. Adrian Heath from Minnesota United expected to join me sometime next week. And we've got all sorts of state fair stuff coming up. Doesn't feel like it's real, but the state fair starts next week. I'll be out there a whole bunch. I'll give you guys a heads up on what that schedule looks like, but we'll turn a lot of those state fair star tribune booth appearances into podcasts as well so should be a lot of fun and hope to see some of you guys out there as well until next week i am michael rand back at it again on monday